This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Jennifer Houston, president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta Products and Services, helping farmers increase their return on investment. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with NCBA's Jennifer Houston, next. Commodity prices remain under pressure. That's why now, more than ever, farmers are focused on their return on investment. More and more, farmers depend on Syngenta products and services designed to increase their ROI. See the Syngenta Seed Innovations, made for better ROI. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. After three decades of service to her state and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Tennessee's Jennifer Houston will serve as the NCBA president this year. Agriculture's carbon footprint is being called into question in Washington and social media. Houston says the Cattlemen's Beef Association was working on sustainability long before it became a buzzword. The first thing, we have a really great program called Beef Quality Assurance, and many thousands of our producers have gone through this Beef Quality Assurance, and that assures our consumers and ourselves that they know how to properly vaccinate, they know how to to make sure that the, the animals are immunized safely and correctly and use humane handling uh, processes. We do a lot of that as to how we move the animals, keeping them quiet. There's much more of a realization how much that does for the animal. So I feel real, real good that they should know on animal handling that we do a great job. And we really care for these animals. You know, I just read a, a friend of mine was talking about she missed mass yesterday because she was watching, you know, supervising her heifers having calves and being out there in the mud uh, on a Sunday morning when she would rather be at church. But that's that was where she was needed to be. And so we really treat these animals well. Um, yes, they're our livelihood, but also it's it's we're in it for a lot of reasons, and economics is certainly one of them. But we're also in it because we love the animals and we love what they do for the environment. Sustainability, we've made great strides uh, that we produce more beef with less animals and a smaller carbon footprint than we ever have before. And we're going to continue to make strides in that. You know, to me, sustainability means a lot of things. Uh, and I think in the beef industry, that's the way we frame it. If there's a social component of how big a part we are of our communities. There's an economic component that we have to be able to make money to stay in year after year. And when you hear all about all these fourth, fifth, third, fourth, fifth generation farmers, you know that they've had to be economically sustainable. And then there's, of course, the environmentally. We're the best stewards of the land. You know, grass is wonderful for uh, for recycling carbon, and grass is what we utilize for cattle, and we use it a lot of places that that's the only thing uh, that could or would grow there is grass. So we have a great sustainability story. And to me, sustainability for agriculture means continuous improvement. And and that's what we've done, you know, the whole time I've been out of college is just total continuous improvement. We're always getting, you know, we started out in the 4-H program making the best better. And that's what we do every day in the livestock and the cattle industry. How do you respond to proposals like the Green New Deal that say we have to get rid of cattle because of their flatulence? Well, number one, we, we need to get some, some facts out to some people. It's very vague, and it's very pie in the sky, and it's got a lot of highfalutin-sounding goals, but 
You know, cattle are not the problem. We're less than 2% of all the greenhouse gases are from agriculture. But we have been under the shadow of a, of a misguided report of livestock's long shadow for a long time. So we've got to get the facts out to people that we're not the problem, and we're continually getting better. And, in, in fact, if you figure in all of what our grasses do for us, you know, we actually may be maybe net pluses, and most people don't realize that. It's not that some of these goals are not lofty, but we all have to do our parts. You know, we can't say that let's get rid of cows while I'm still driving my SUV and we're jet-setting all over the world. We all have to put, put our part into it. Uh, as consumers and as Americans, and not make one person or one segment the bad guys in all of this. With regard to the production of beef, uh, I would say almost all of the livestock industry has made strides toward the reduction of antibiotic use. Has that effort been led because science told you that was the best for the animal, or is that an area that you have moved toward to satisfy the concern of the consumer. We saw no science, no cause and effect that anything we did in the livestock industry affected human health. But we did have consumers concerned about it. And as we've learned through the years, as I talked about that learning process of being beef producers, we have to listen to our consumers and be mindful of what they want. While balancing that with with the economics of trying to not only economics, but the animal welfare of treating our animals when they're sick and preventing disease. So I think certainly the the talk out in the world and our consumers started this, but I think as we got into it, we found that as with other parts of the beef production chain, you know, maybe we can do more with less. Uh, maybe we can look at other ways to to handle this and and we don't none of us want to just keep doing something just because it's always been the way that we do it but we don't want to abandon you know sound science by any means and not get to use a technology that's important to animal welfare and animal health how do you see now the beef industry in terms of of the cyclical nature of this business how are beef producers faring today quite frankly we're in better shape than some of our brethren our feeder cattle prices, if you if you really take out 14 and 15, which was the the very very high market, um, demand is great both both domestically and internationally, and I think it sort of helped uh, keep us propped up there. So if you take out those two high years, we're still uh, at or above uh, where we've been. You know the cycle before that. The cycles are looking from what cattle facts and other economists tell me a little different than we talked about when I was in college, maybe when it was pretty steady eight-year cycle, that maybe the, the, they last a little bit longer. Uh, we've got more cattle on the market, so we're going to work through that, which I think has really affected beef producers' cull cow prices much more so than that. But all in all, compared to some of our other aspects of agriculture, such as grain, uh, we could be in a worse position than we are in. So then thinking about where your income comes from, how important is the domestic market and how important is the global market to this industry? Uh, I think they're really uh, intertwined, and I think both of them for beef producers are absolutely critical. Uh, the domestic market, the demand is as strong as it is with the prices and, and the prices of the meat case we've had tells us that people like our product. Uh, there's a, a growing realization over the last few years of what high-quality protein does for you in your diet. 
I think we will see more and more talk over the next few years of what it does for young people, young children, and how it helps their cognitive development more so than we've had that discussion in the past. So domestic demand is important, but, but exports equally important. Uh, about $320 worth of every fed animal is due to export. So that's, that's a great percentage. 13 percentage, give or take a little bit, of our beef production is exported. So we need to keep the markets we've got, develop new ones, uh, because that's, that's what keeps our prices up. This administration very early on pulled the U.S. out of the TPP and promised bilateral agreements, now beginning to work uh, or speaking of working with the Japanese, uh, put tariffs on steel and aluminum, and there was retaliation from various markets. Challenges remain between uh, Canada and the U.S. and Mexico and the, Mu- and the U.S. with regard to those tariffs, despite the USMCA being approved, uh, and, of course, the ongoing trade war uh, with China. How do you see this administration's efforts from the global market perspective as it pertains to your industry? Well, we were disappointed, obviously, when we dropped out of TPP, but we encourage and have been encouraging and will keep to encourage this administration to get to the table on the bilaterals. Uh, I know that, that they're going to China uh, next week prior to the March 1st deadline uh, to talk bilaterals there. They're, they've started preliminary talks with Japan. We think that's absolutely critical to us as Japan is our number one um, consumer of exports and we're at eleven percent tariff disadvantage to our main competitor in Japan, Australia. So it says a lot that they're still our number one customer and almost a, a two billion dollar market even though we're at that kind of tariff disadvantage. But we know that the the countries such as Australia and Canada and that are in the new TPP, the comprehensive TPP, there that tariff Gulf is going to widen. It'll get another bump here, I think, April 1st. So we think it's imperative um, that this administration stay at the table with Japan, and that's what we're going to be pushing them to do over this next year. From the global marketplace, what are your prize markets? What are the ones that, that you count on now and the ones that you're really hoping for seeing growth? Well, obviously, Japan, uh, Mexico, Canada, South Korea is just a, a success story in and of itself. Uh, exports to South beef exports are up almost 45% from last year to this year from a country that uh, that not too long ago was protesting in the streets against American beef. So that really shows in our checkoff dollars and our market access programs really work for organizations that through the Meat Export Federation that kept working in Korea until they got the Korean Free Trade Agreement and how it, absolutely those free trade agreements. And we applaud that that was renewed last year. As far as new markets, obviously China's always going to be out there. Uh, if we could, especially if we could get, um, during these trade negotiations, get rid of some non-tariff trade barriers, uh, such as no use of hormones uh, at any level, no use of beta agonists, and have the same access to China that we have to Japan, uh, Cattlefax estimates that that would just be billions of dollars worth of market. We know they like U.S. beef. We know they're still buying some, even with the tariffs. But how much more if we can eliminate both the tariffs and the non-tariff trade barriers? As well as we really starting to see a lot of increase in 
some of the other Asian nations and ASEAN nations over in the Pacific and starting to get, you know, more in South America and Africa. They've got their own challenges, some of them with, with cold chain management and, you know, to get fresh beef and frozen beef. But we'll keep looking for new markets. Here at home, you're seeing some additional challenge now from alternative protein sources. Obviously, there are those who prefer a vegan diet that would shift away from beef, but now there are proteins that are available that are being sourced from plants, and there's also a lab-grown meat that is growing uh, in interest and certainly in investment. How do you see those challenges? There'll always be a niche market. Certainly, we've had plant-based proteins for a while, and although they added some new tweaks, they're still basically a plant-based protein product, and there's always going to be a few people uh, that make that choice. What we really went about for last year on the cell-cultured or lab-created or whatever you want to call this new technology that they don't even know what they want to call um, was to be on a level playing field. It's what we found out about this process is what we really don't know. So we participated um, in the joint USDA-FDA hearings um, last fall because we felt really important that if they're going to play in the meat space, and we won't even talk about what they call it because we don't know yet, but if they're going to play in the meat space, then they need to follow the same guidelines that our conventionally raised beef does in that it's inspected daily on a continuous basis by the Food Safety Inspection Service of the USDA. And it looked like there was a a big turf war for a while in Washington about who was going to do that. We came down squarely on the side of it has to be FSIS so that we're on a level playing field. In addition, one of the reasons we want it to be FSIS is on labeling. FSIS requires pre-approval on labeling, and it's got to be scientific-based. So you can't just make wild claims um, such that, you know, it's, call it clean meat or better for the environment, unless you've got the science to back it up. And FDA does not have follow it quite the same way. So we think that the compromise uh, that was reached this fall, the framework that FDA is there, uh, is the technology safe up until commercial time, and that USDA takes over if it ever comes or when it comes into commercial production is fair. But we want to continue. We're going to be monitoring that um, to make sure that all the facts come out and that the framework stays such it is. And, we, in fact, we've started a campaign uh, called Fake Meat uh, Facts, you know, the questions that need to be answered. Um, some of those examples might be all of our animals before they're harvested are, are inspected while they're still alive. Is the animals that these cells are cultured from, their cell families, they call them, are they going to be inspected? You know, we don't know. We don't know exactly how that handoff from FDA to USDA is going to be handled or what point it occurs. So there's a lot of questions we're going to continue monitoring um, as this this technology moves forward. So the plant-based meat alternative is already in the marketplace and at restaurants across the country. How soon do you see the cultured meat from laboratories being in the marketplace? Uh, we... I, you know, I don't know. We hear anything from, from two years to ten. Um, so I'm not sure they'll have to get it down to where it's, you know, cost effective. And then, and again, all these, all these questions are going to have to be answered, I feel, before it's brought to market. You have already the issue of dairy milk 
milk from a lactating animal and then the plant source milks. And there is a debate about that going on right now about how those should have been and should be labeled now. Do you think it's important to get in on the front end of this? Is is that a reason for your urgency? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we felt our dairy producers, um, they've had milk standards. The FDA's had milk standards for over 30 years. And it's been 20, I think, years since the milk producers asked for enforcement of dairy standards. And you're finally hearing this year some talk that it needs to be labeled by what it is, whether it's nut juice or however they want to call it, but it's not milk. So we felt it was really important on this lab-based product that we get out on front and make sure that it's called what it is. We have a lot of different issues are coming up from our states that we hear about that different states are, are being very proactive in talking about what it can be labeled. But one thing we found out at that hearing is they don't even agree, all the companies that at least spoke, don't agree on what it ought to be called. So that's there's, there's a lot more still to be told about that story, but we're going to keep vigilant that that it's very clearly labeled what it is. What about placement in the meat case at the grocery store? Um, I would prefer it not to be there. Again, that's not going to be my choice, but we will we will work to, again to have it clearly marked and clearly labeled uh, for what it is. Jennifer, how important is the beef checkoff to the success of your industry? I think it's been vital. It's one of those things that's, it's it's hard to prove, although we do have studies. The last one, the return on investment study, was that every dollar invested brought back $11.20 uh, worth of benefits. But I think there's so much of this that people don't don't know and don't see. It's behind the scenes, if you will. We see some of the advertising, especially if you're on um, the Internet, which is where we really concentrated our promotion efforts are because that's our number one target audience is millennials. But through the years, whether it's talking about fat, if we hadn't been talking, if we hadn't been doing research, if we hadn't been speaking up for ourselves, it's, it's really hard to guess, but in my opinion, we would have been in a much worse place. We wouldn't have had this incredible beef demand, both globally and domestically, had we not been telling our story, had we not been doing nutrition research, sustainability research, being out there every day talking about uh, beef to our influence, talking about nutrition, talking about beef in a heart-healthy diet. All of those the issues management, you know, keeping up with uh, IARC when we had that report on beef and cancer that they tried to draw uh, a connection there, and we had research saying that there was no cause and effect between red meat and cancer. We've been doing that research for 10 years prior to that, that report coming out. So I think it's been invaluable to beef producers, and it's allowed us to be not the only reason. You know, there's a lot of other reasons why we've got strong demand, but there's no doubt in my mind that the beef checkoff was part of it. There's a lot of new faces in this Congress, a lot of new faces on the House Agriculture Committee and in the lower chamber as well. How important to reach out and make sure that agriculture is understood and the significance of checkoffs are understood to these new members as certainly those challenges are in place and will continue to arise? That's going to be one of our number one priorities. It's, it's education and getting to know and build relationships with all these new members. You know, we did have challenges to the checkoff in the farm bill, and I think a lot of it is just people don't really understand how it works, why it works, and that producers want it. You know, over 80% approval 
every checkoff um, study that's been done. So it's something that most all of our producers want and see the value in. So uh, we're going to have to go, uh, whether it's on the checkoff, whether it's just on beef production, agriculture in general, and meet with, I've got appointments this spring to meet with Tennessee's got, I think, four new members of uh, the House to meet with them and to talk about our industry and what it means to Tennessee and what it means to the U.S. And I think we're going to be doing that in every state so that we can, you know, you have to have that understanding before you can really talk policy. Well, Jennifer Houston, no shortage of work for you and the rest of the cattlemen leadership in the days to come. And certainly we're grateful that you would take time to spend with us here on this edition of Open Mic. It is a tradition on Open Mic that you have the last word. My last word is to tell people to get involved, for our, for our producers, to get involved at whatever level they are. There's more that unites us than divides us, and we need to stick together. And, you know, if you're, if you're on the other side, if you're not a producer, you know, find out. We, we are proud of our product. We raise the best product possible, and we take pride every day in going out there and doing that. And so we look forward to engaging. So if you have questions, you know, don't ask a neighbor. There's no shortage. Ask the producer. You can find a farmer. You can find a rancher. And we'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Our thanks to Tennessee's Jennifer Houston, president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta Products and Services, helping farmers increase their return on investment. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.